Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hi, this is Daniel Koba. I'm the editor-in-chief of AJHP and the vice president of publishing at ASHP, and I'll be your host today for the ASHP Practice Journeys podcast. Again, this year, as a celebration of pride, ASHP is hosting four podcasts with LGBTQ leaders in pharmacy. With me today is the author team for a 2018 AJHP article entitled, Navigating the Residency Application Process for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Student Pharmacists. Clay Daniels is an EHR application analyst at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Lindsay Kelly is Director of Ambulatory Oncology Research and Allergy Pharmacy Services at Michigan Medicine. Christopher Scott is Chief Clinical and Revenue Officer at Eskenazi Health in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Tate Trujillo is the Director of Pharmacy at IU Health in Indianapolis. Clay, Lindsay, Chris, Tate, welcome. Happy Pride. How are you this morning? Very well. Happy Pride to you as well, Dan. Welcome. It's good to see all of you this early on a Monday morning. This past weekend was the main celebration of Pride in Washington, and the streets were full of people decked out in a lot of different ways. I think there was a, a lot of pent-up energy following the cancellation of the 2020 Pride celebrations. What's it look like in your areas? Chris and Tate, how are the celebrations in Indianapolis? I know you guys are usually pretty involved. Unfortunately, there was no live Pride Festival this year, so I think the planning committee for Indie Pride 2021 was still just trying to figure out what was going on with the pandemic. So typically this weekend would have been a large Pride Festival, lots of vendors and booths and a parade, which is fantastic to participate in. This year they did a virtual festival where you could click around on the different areas, different stages. So they still had some performances they were streaming but nothing formal in person or the Pride Festival. Of course, that didn't mean there weren't a whole bunch of little parties going on and gatherings downtown and along Mass Ave of Indianapolis. So still a lot of fun. We didn't partake in those parties this weekend, however. (laughs) Well, hopefully, here's hoping for Pride 2022 on that note. Lindsay, how about in Ann Arbor? Yeah, I think we're in a similar situation. So Ann Arbor is holding their events virtually. They have a, I think, sounds similar to Indiana. They have a series of events set up to attend. There were some events. We often attend the Ypsilanti Pride Festival, which is in a neighboring city. And that one is a really good time and a good party. And so obviously we didn't go last year. We actually missed it this year as well. But those who I know who attended had a wonderful time and were able to report one, that we're getting much older and we no longer understand kids these days. <laughs> a good time was had by all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Clay, that was a perfect entree for you. What about kids these days? What's going on down in Memphis? I definitely don't feel connected to the kids these days either. <laughs> Memphis, a couple of weeks ago, we did have Mid-South Pride virtually, but they did something nice probably two weeks before where they did a car caravan and filmed it as they went down Bill Street. So they had everyone decorate their cars and they played that during their virtual festival. And then in two weeks, we're actually going to have Tri-State Black Pride. And I believe most of those events are actually going to be in person here in Memphis. Fantastic. Well, let's turn to your February 2018 AJHP article. 
in the opening, you talked about the added stress of the residency application and match process for LGBTQ applicants. Did each of you feel some degree of stress? And Clay, your experience was most recent, so I'm going to start with you. What was it like? I think there's always a little bit of underlying stress, but I will say my experience was very different from what I think a lot of the students that were going through the process at the same time I was here in Tennessee. I went to College of Pharmacy here in Tennessee, and I feel that a lot of people were still remaining in the closet when they were trying to navigate the residency process, especially here in the South. Fortunately, I had been out since I started pharmacy school, so I was very comfortable and felt that it was important that that aspect of my life was known to the program so that I knew that I would be a good fit for them and they would be a good fit for me. So I think I had very little stress related to it, but I don't think that mine was the common experience of the classmates that graduated with me here in the South. So Clay, you had also completed a PhD before even going into pharmacy school. So you were a little bit further along, I would imagine probably a a little bit later into your 20s or so by the time you went into the process. Do you think that made a difference? I think it definitely did. I had a good five years on those kids that were in pharmacy school with me and I was much more comfortable with myself. I had been out for years and years in undergrad and throughout my PhD and applying to pharmacy school. So it really was something that I was comfortable disclosing and made it very easy for me. But I do understand a lot of the students that had gone from either a four-year undergrad program or some of them had done two to three years and gone directly into pharmacy school were still learning how to best navigate being LGBTQ and the professional experiences that they're going to have as a pharmacist, not to mention the added stress of knowing that it's extremely competitive to get a residency. Yeah. For sure. Lindsay, you and I had a chance to talk last year, and I know that you've been really introspective, as probably all of us have, on a lot of this. You reflected on that in your letter, in letters uh, from women in pharmacy. What about you? What was the match process like? I'm probably somewhat similar to Clay in that I was a little bit older than some of my counterparts in pharmacy school. I wish I was similar in that I could say that I felt more mature at that time, but I don't think I did. I think I was still really struggling with that. And so, you know, I've talked about this since then, but I used a lot of coded language. I felt a lot of additional stress. And so for me, I was also attempting to leave my home state. So I was looking at regions and areas that weren't as familiar when I was looking at residency programs. And so I think that added a little bit of an additional layer, just thinking about how you might begin to assess areas that weren't familiar to you. And so I would say I was... I was fairly stressed out during the residency match process. Yeah. You know, last year when I talked to Jorge Garcia and Lainer Martinez, and they shared their experience of navigating the match as a couple, I think it's fair to say that that added a layer of complexity for them. Chris and Tate, you weren't actually going through the match as a couple, were you, at the time, but you were together when at least one of you was going through, or maybe both of you were going through the match at just various points in time. Is that correct? Tate, what was the process like for you, and did the complexity of being in a relationship with another pharmacy student make a difference? That was probably the part that added the most stress. I think Lindsay's comment of coded language Given that time, I was just in the process of coming out. I was out with some, not out with others. And really, my first round of interviews for my first year residency were all out of state. And knowing Chris was still back at Purdue, how that was going to affect things plays a huge part. I don't know if that's unique to 
our situation as in any other relationship situation in terms of how folks, what do they do with their significant other that's back, that's a couple of years behind. But I think that plays a part as to how, how you start communicating. I was less concerned about where I was going, being a gay male, and more concerned about how I was going to communicate and include Chris in my life kind of as we transition into that space. So did people pick up, Tate, on that coded language? Did, did you get any you know, sense that people were getting it? Uh, I think some did. Most didn't care at that time. I think it was, you know, you don't really ever know how well you're disguising the coded language. You use the general pronouns to kind of keep it very vague. And you don't know how well people pick up on those signs. I wish the listeners could see some of the smiles right now because I think Chris is the other other part of this couple wants to jump in here. And Lindsay's also smiling as well. So Chris, I'm going to give you a chance to sort of jump in. I don't know if you want to correct anything historically here or where you're going to go. Yeah, so nothing to correct historically, Dan. I was just laughing because, you know, I think we all interact with people and and have this in our imagination that they couldn't possibly think I were gay when I interacted with them. And you know, they're probably thinking the whole time, oh, this dude's gay. And I, know <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know why he's trying to use this coded language. I think at the time of seeking out a new job, especially in a residency position, especially in, in that type of environment where you know you're sitting with eight other people interviewing for the same position and you're going through you know, the testing and their case studies and their, your presentation. And, you know, you're doing everything that you can to try to, uh, I guess, quote unquote, blend in from that standpoint, but at the same time, stand out from a clinical standpoint and make sure that people remember you as a good candidate. So it is an interesting balancing game that you play during that interview process, because perhaps that's something that is attractive to a program to say, hey, here's some diversity, right? I certainly was not thinking that going through as a student, but now I'm looking at recruitment classes and, and making sure that there's representation and making sure that there is diversity within those who we rank. It's interesting from this side of the, the process, from the organizational side versus the candidate side. Of course, as a candidate, I would have said, absolutely do not talk about those things. I'm not going to bring it up. <laughs> but also, that was many, many years ago for me. Lindsay, you, I know you want to jump in here, so please do. I mean, I don't know that I, I really have much that I think Chris really hit the experience on the head, right? Like you're, you're spending so much time, you know, worried about what people think and are, you know, whether you're blending inappropriately, but also standing out. And so it, I think it, it never even occurred to me that one people already knew, right. Which of course, as I went through my career, they were like, Oh yeah. Like, thank you for sharing. But like, we knew that, but I think secondarily, it just reminds me that oftentimes, and, and I think you're more focused on what's happening with you, but frequently the person you're interacting with is not going to remember or could care about the things that you're worried about. Right. And so I think that that has been a really important thing for me to take away, but that's part of why I was laughing at that experience. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We all laughed when Chris's comment about, you know, this dude's gay. And because I think it's fair to say you've got a group of five people here who are where we're all really comfortable in our skin at this point in time. But it's still fair to say that young students today may not be so comfortable and really may not necessarily want that reality of somebody so easily recognizing that, you know, you are LGBTQ. That really, I think, despite our level of comfort, can uh, still be a complicating factor for them. And, and that actually leads me into something that's been on my mind. Last year, subsequent to your article, which was published in 2018, last year, the, the Supreme Court handed a legal victory to LGBTQ people by affirming that an employer who fires an individual merely for being gay or transgender violates Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Even with those heightened protections, do you still think the match process is anxiety provoking for LGBTQ candidates? Lindsay, let's pick up with you again on that thought. Yeah, I think it probably is. And I think part of that anxiety is likely due to the evolution of rights over time. We've seen some great victories. I think we've also seen some recent attacks on LGBTQ populations and specifically thinking about you know, our transgender colleagues and some of the things that are happening at the state level. And so I imagine navigating regional or state legislative concerns is probably is significantly anxiety provoking for our students as they look at where they want to go. What do the rest of you think? I don't know, Clay, if you want to jump in or Chris and Tate about the current state of whether it's despite all the advances we've made, despite how comfortable all five of us are, is it still anxiety provoking for some students? I would say, Dan, well, one, I think it's anxiety provoking for any pharmacy student going through the match. But secondly, I would say that given the information that Lindsay was speaking about, you know, we didn't have access to some of that information when I was going through the match, right? You know, I'm talking about, I guess, 99 um, into 2000 is when I was going through the match. And so things were different. The landscape was different. The discussions were extremely different. And so when I was looking at residency programs, I only looked in three different states, none of them very progressive, including Indiana. And so I kind of knew what I was getting into. I think now there's kind of that layer of complexity that each state has a different environment and culture that is kind of readily available out there on the internet and in social media. And you can do a lot of that checking with friends and colleagues and look at those organizational websites and see how they're committed to diversity or not. You know, there is a level of anxiety for sure, but also there's a lot more tools out there for individuals to use while they're doing that search. Tate, do you agree? Yeah, well, I think also a lot of the anxiety components of going through the match, I think, really depend on when the individual has come out. If someone is coming out in college or coming out right about the same time as they're going through the match, I think, and that's more where I was, you're more worried about what other people think of you. You're not fully adept into all the resources that are out there and available, or you haven't probably been given thought as to what city, state, is the right place to go or not go and those type of things. But we have a lot more youth coming out early into high school, junior high, prior to that, that by the time they get to this stage, by the time they get to the match, they are very well educated and aware 
as to the resources and how to go look at things. And so then rulings like the Supreme Court did play a big key because they have been years into what the political movement has been. So Tate, as a follow-up, you, and this goes a bit to what Chris was saying just a minute ago, you talk about how younger people are more prepared these days. And actually, I just had a chance to interview Kelly Brunk at the University of Kansas. His podcast is being published today. And he talked about going from career as a professional dancer into pharmacy and just sort of that contrast. And also, he by the time he got into pharmacy and was going through the match, he was a little bit older as well. And so it was a different experience for him. But you talk about the applicants being prepared in a different way. Chris made reference to this as well in terms of the tools. Do you think the vast majority of programs at this point will embrace and support LGBTQ people as they present? Look forward to that diversity that Chris was talking about a few minutes ago? It's an interesting question. Chris and I probably have both unique lenses doing site accreditation visits for ASHP, for residency accreditation, and kind of being able to go about around the country and kind of see different regions and how people interact. With that being said, I think most programs that I've interacted with either don't care or are going to embrace. I don't see any real negatives out there, at least the programs that I've you know, visited and I've done accreditation visits for 15 plus years and So I've seen a a large swath of the United States. So Chris, like most things in life, is Tate right here? Well, let's not get too carried away here, Dan. (laughs) We don't like to admit when Tate is perhaps right. Um, (laughs) I will say that, spoiler alert for those who are listening, there are a lot of LGBTQ people within the profession of pharmacy. So I don't think that's very surprising to people. I do think that most programs either at worst are, I guess, apathetic about it (laughs) and at best extremely supportive and welcoming. I've not really encountered a program or seen complaints come across my email or social media or any other modality that really say like this program or this state has been really bad to me because of LGBTQ issues within the world of pharmacy. That's a really hopeful message. That's an extremely hopeful message. And with that in mind, so Clay, as the lead author, what are some of the steps that you advise LGBTQ students to take as they assess whether a residency program will be a good fit for them, not only overall, but especially as an LGBTQ candidate? I think we hit on quite a few of them already. There are a lot of resources out there and available for students to really understand the climate of where they are applying and what it's potentially going to feel like when they're a resident there. All of these organizations are putting their DNI information up on the internet. And really, it's easy to see if there is a commitment to diversity and inclusion within the organization. Here at St. Jude, I know that we've really had a lot of efforts in the last few years to make sure that we're not just putting it internally, but also forward facing so that a lot of people can understand that and recognize it. And so I think the biggest thing is really just go and search around the websites for a lot of the places that you're going to be applying to see what they put out there. Do they want people to know that they support the LGBTQ community? If not, maybe you need to do a little bit more digging. Pharmacy is a small world. We all know each other. 
it's very easy to find someone that trained at a location or practices currently at that location or know someone who did really tap into your mentors and try to recognize that as well. And finally, we talked a lot about regional political climates, but I think it's also important for students to remember that you might be going to a place to train for a year or two and that state might not be the most LGBTQ friendly, but if you're at an organization that has a commitment to diversity and inclusion and supports the LGBTQ community, it could still be an excellent opportunity for training, even though that state itself might have politics that are necessarily not beneficial for you, speaking from someone that's in Tennessee and experiences that quite a bit, but practices at an extremely inclusive and welcoming institution. And I think is a great opportunity for people to practice at and to train at. So really don't rule out large swaths of the country because of some of the state politics. Look at the institution very closely. It's an interesting perspective, Clay. And I think, again, it, it really is valuable to that student who's just trying to navigate this landscape. One of the things that you talked about in the article, and I can remember the two of us even talking about this as you were getting ready to put the article together with the group, was this issue of how many signals do you give with your CV, for example, and talking about organizations that you've been involved with. What are your thoughts on this at that point? Or that at this point, excuse me. <laughs> that was a very interesting discussion as we put the article together, trying to figure out what LGBTQ activities do you put on your CV? And I really think that it goes back to, is this going to show that you have leadership skills? Is it going to show that you're a strong candidate? And it just happens to be in an LGBTQ group or committee or something along those lines. And it's always valuable to put examples of that into your CV. And we also kind of discussed the idea of maybe that student isn't out and it might not be best for them to put that into their CV because it's not part of how they want to sell themselves as a potential candidate. But it is something that they need to think about beforehand when they're putting their CV together as to what to include and to really recognize that no matter what's on your CV, be able to speak to all of it because people will read it and they will ask you about anything and everything that is on there to make sure that you definitely know what is on there no matter what. Yeah, good point. And Chris, it looks I, like you wanted to jump in. Yeah, if I could just add, I think that something to remember, and we all know this, but something to remember as people are listening to this or trying to digest some of this information is that we know the LGBTQ community is not a monolith, right? And so not everyone is at the same point in that continuum of, as Tate was saying, it is coming out. Not everyone's at the same point as being as comfortable talking about it. Some people would say, absolutely, I can go to any site, train anywhere, because I'm going to be focused 100% on that residency. It doesn't matter if there's a gay bar down the street. It doesn't matter if there's an employee resource group. I'm not going to have time to do those things. Those aren't important to me. Other people are going to say, that's how I gain my resilience. That's how I reset. And so all of those things, that community is extremely important. So it just, it's highly dependent on that person and kind of the things that re-energize them and or recharge them, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're so right in terms of making the point that we're not a monolith. We are all very different. Uh, I think it's fair to say the five of us on this, you know, in this conversation today are alike in many ways, but very different in many ways as well. You know, I want to go back actually to something, Chris, that you talked about before. And Tate, again, you talked about your experiences surveying programs and also your experience training residents. And just the fact that 
probably the number one priority should be presenting yourself as the very best candidate for the program, given the competitive nature. I don't know, again, Chris or Tate, if you want to jump in on that and just talk a bit more about that and how you balance that with some of the things that you were talking about, Chris, in terms of how we differ in terms of what we're looking for in a program. I'm going to kind of tack to Clay's comment in terms of, you know, what goes on the CV and not. And I really think outside of LGBTQ issues, organizations on the CV, I think what goes on your CV, how you present yourself should be what you're passionate about, what you're comfortable with. Even if it's a presentation on a scientific clinical topic, if you weren't passionate about it, you didn't love it, maybe it's probably not good to even have it on there because it's not, you're probably not going to want to address it in the first place. You know, I look at it, LGBTQ, my volunteer activities, even as you start asking the question or trying to guide students as to, you know, do you stick your church youth group or, you know, religious activities on a CV? I think you can argue both ways on, on that topic. And it really comes down to who are you and what you're passionate about as to how you present yourself, either on paper, on your CV, how you write your letter of intent, as well as how you're going to do that interview process and what stories you're going to tell and as part of an answer to the interview process. I agree with that, Dan. I think, I guess to play a little bit of devil's advocate and to look at many different minoritized groups, it may be that if you come in as a candidate to a gay program director or gay preceptor who's interviewing you, they're going to think this guy needs to perform twice as hard right? They need to be perfect when they're coming through because I'm going to hold them to a higher level or a higher standard because of this one parameter, right? And so you see that in African-American groups, you see that in Asian-American groups, you see that in LGBT groups that perhaps we're harder on our own than others would be. The other side of that is if a candidate comes through and it's 20 things are on their CV that are gay this, gay, 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 gay. I have my pride band on like I do today. I have a pride tie on. I, I talk about my husband the whole time during the interview. You're going to think, is there more to this person than just this? That's not something you would expect from all of the rest of your candidates, right? You don't want everyone to come in and talk about their entire family, you know, who they live with, all of those types of things during a 20-minute interview session. Again, it goes back to some of that as a balance. It really does point out that, as you said, a balance and a, an entire portfolio, a whole person that, again, as individuals, we're not monoliths either. We're very diverse in terms of what we're bringing to the table. Lindsay, in the article, you presented some personal perspectives. What were those? Yeah, in the article, I talked a little bit about my journey. I spoke specifically about my own comfort with who I was at that point, you know, developing my own comfort and figuring out how to gauge the comfort of a program. And so specifically during my time as a student seeking residency, I asked a lot of questions about the community. You know, I think the way Chris described it, I really rely on community for resiliency. And so I wanted to know at a time when I think not many organizations were very forthright with what they were doing around DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, I really wanted to know like what is your investment as an organization in the LGBTQ community? 
therefore, what will be your investment and celebration of me? And so I asked a lot of questions about community and I told this story, but where I went for residency, I asked almost everybody I interacted with, you know, tell me about the community in Minneapolis. Tell me about your organization and tell me, you know, you know, what are you doing around celebrating others? And the resident that I interviewed with initially at mid-year or spoke with initially at mid-year, I don't know if it was intentional, but jumped right in and began to describe all the different communities within Minneapolis and specifically spent a few minutes just talking about areas where there was a great diversity around LGBTQ communities. And I really, at that moment, could have hugged him for reading my coded language, whether it was intentional or not, and giving me what I needed. I needed to know, like, how are you going to handle my differences and, and my, frankly, my lack of comfort with them at that time? <laughs> and so I really did appreciate them, you know, jumping in and, and offering that support. You know, we were talking a little bit about, you know, how organizations present and how I think it's much we celebrate much better now than we have in the past, the diversities of our teams. And, and so I do think like organizations have a commitment to demonstrate the celebration of diversity and to specifically demonstrate LGBT populations. My wife and I talk about this. She works for a, a research lab in a big policy school here at the University of Michigan. And they specifically are looking at how they can increase the awareness of their support for LGBTQ communities because they're very supportive, but there's no presence for that. And so as they recruit and they bring people in, they've received feedback that you could do a better job of demonstrating the celebration of a multitude of groups, but specifically engaging on this one right now. And I would encourage students to ask directly where I was afraid to ask, you know, how does your organization support LGBT employees or, or LGBTQ community involvement? What is, you know, what does that look like for your organization? I think I would just encourage students as they're comfortable to ask directly and to really investigate that. I can say that now as a much more comfortable human, <laughs> I probably would have been, you know, definitely afraid to ask that as a, as a person interviewing, but I really, you know, like to take the point when you're talking about the dimensions you present on your CV and how you date in this environment in terms of like you being a candidate and them being a residency, it feels a little bit like dating where you're kind of hedging, wondering if it's going to work out or if they like you, but you know, like we've all learned, I think it's, you know, it's going to work best if you just present who you are and are really vulnerable and honest about that. So I would encourage people to present all of their dimensions. So Lindsay, I also heard you present a pearl in there for residency programs as well, but to really address head on how they as programs embrace DEI. You segued us into the final part of our conversation today, and that's pearls for LGBTQ pharmacy students who are beginning to prepare to apply for residencies. Clay, do you want to take up on that along with everything you've already shared? Are there a few additional pearls that you would give to those students? I think taking it a little step back before you even start to write your CV and really analyzing yourself and making a decision early on as to what level of comfort you have disclosing, what level do you want to disclose, and being very purposeful in that as you move forward with your CV and your search for places to apply and your interviews. But if you wait until you're in the middle of the process to make that decision, you might not have as much control over what's going on and how it's going to end up turning out during the middle of all of this. But if you start off in the very beginning with thinking about 
not only being LGBTQ, but where do I think I want my career to go? Where do I see myself living? It's one of those things that when you first start thinking about the residency process, just keep that in the back of your mind. Don't dwell on it and don't think that it's something that you have to be overly worried about, but don't think that it's something you can package away and deal with later either. And no matter what level of comfort you have, think about it. <laughs> Clay, as the corresponding author on the article, have students reached out to you or folks who are in their residency or even maybe a bit later as they've begun their careers, have they reached out to you and said that they've used the article as part of their process? In the beginning, when we first published the article, I had a few students reach out and say that they found it helpful. They really appreciated just having LGBTQ pharmacists out there writing publications and really just kind of letting them know that we are out there. And I think everyone knows that, but putting it out there and publishing really helped students to feel more comfortable. At the University of Tennessee, our Health Science Center actually started an LGBTQ student group that was getting off the ground when I graduated. And so I actually have gone to some of their meetings and taken the pharmacy aspect out of it because a lot of it applies no matter what kind of residency you're looking for and taken our paper and basically given it as a presentation and thrown in a few other things that we've learned since then in conversations that I've had and kind of opened it up for dialogue with students. And it's been a really great experience. So the paper has been very helpful, I think. Yeah, and as, if I recall from your research, it really was one of the first pieces on this topic in any of the health professions in terms of the residency process and LGBTQ candidates. Yes, I, I think we were, there were a few other studies that were out there that kind of looked at it from a survey after the professional had completed training and was established, but not really any guidance about how to navigate the process, more of how was this experience for you five, 10 years ago? So Tate, Chris, anything you would add on to those pearls that Clay and Lindsay have offered? I think from my perspective, Dan, I would include it in my rubric of assessing a residency program. And again, this is my personal perspective because I'm not a, a big bar goer and I'm not a person that, that needs this huge community, right? But I would look at, okay, what do I want to do with my career? Where do I see my PGY2 coming in? So if I wanted to do critical care, I'm not going to go to a program that doesn't have good critical care training for PGY1, right? And so if this is an important component of what I believe to be very important to me on a day-to-day -day basis, then I'm going to fit that in my rubric of, you know, teaching certificate, LGBTQ community support, critical care as an opportunity. So all of those things kind of fit into my prioritization. And then I think each candidate is going to list those in a separate priority, right? And so some people might think I could see myself going to zero places that don't have LGBTQ support community, et cetera. And so that becomes more important when they're doing their rankings. Tate, the last word. That doesn't happen very often. Um, <laughs> I think the overarching piece is I don't know that I would overthink the LGBTQ component. I think my bigger recommendation or focus for everyone that is considering going to residency is understand why you're doing it, where you want your life to go in general, both professionally and how well you want the LGBTQ component kind of built in there and where where it's important to you. So I think anyone that can speak to a story as to why you would want to come do my residency, why you want to do this specialty, what has driven you to critical care, what has driven you to ambulatory care, you know, what has driven you to HIV medicine, if that is your ambulatory care space of choice, being able to look at those stories and really being able to 
march out a, a longer vision. I ask every single person that I mentor, it's an interesting question as to what do you want to be doing? What job do you want to be doing? What are the characteristics of the job three to five years before retirement? I mean, way out there, when you're 60, what do you want the job to do? And then start working your way back to figure out how you want to get there, how you want to decide some paths in the road in that component. And so in that piece, this is just one small component, although for some it's much larger and for others it's much smaller. And we all said that we're all unique individuals. And with that wisdom that I hope students will listen to, and maybe we can do a whole podcast on that at some point, that circuitous route to retirement. With that, I want to thank Clay Daniels, Lindsay Kelly, Chris Scott, and Tate Trujillo for joining me today for this great discussion. Their article on navigating the pharmacy residency match as an LGBTQ applicant is available at ajhp.org. Join us here at ASHP Official and the Practice Journeys podcast as we learn about how LGBTQ pharmacy leaders seek out, grow, and evolve during their careers. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues, family, friends, and via your social media of choice. And enjoy Pride 2021. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.